Belong. Become. Believe. You're listening to Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. The name of the message for the week of November 22nd, 2020 is called Christ is King, period. The speaker is John Ray, and the location is from inside 2828 in Fayetteville, Arkansas. You know, as a kid, I grew up in a very strange household. We rooted both for the Texas Longhorns and the Arkansas Razorbacks. I know, I know that sounds impossible. But when the two played each other, we would agree to root for whoever the underdog was and ultimately be okay with the the outcome as long as it was a good game and played fairly. And I know some people say that that's not possible to, to pull equally for two opponents like that. They say it's oxymoronic or maybe just moronic. They'll argue it's the same as saying a person is a meat-eating vegetarian or a Shakespearean mime. But it's true. It was true, at least for us. Somehow, as a household, we pulled it off. But there are some things we can't reconcile. Sometimes there are situations where a choice has to be made. The problem is we usually settle for false choices. We're pressured to pledge allegiances to something superficial while ignoring the necessity of a deeper allegiance. The confession of Christ as King, that Jesus Christ is Lord, is a radical proclamation of allegiance that denies any and all other allegiances. And while it might sound simple to say, living it out is a whole nother thing. Well, let's dig in this week and see what we can find on this Christ the King Sunday. You see, the big idea here is that the declaration of Christ as King redefines all of our allegiances in a most radical way. It orders our affections. It it puts our affiliations in the right way. This proclamation that Jesus is Lord is both a spiritual proclamation, yes, but it is also political. Now, Now, I want to be careful when I say that. There's a huge difference between partisanship and political action. Politics is just how we organize ourselves as human beings. That's, that's what we do. Politics happens. And so, of course, the word, the Bible, our faith is political because we, we enact it in a public way. And we do it in coordination with other people who claim allegiances. So it is, it is political, but not in the way that partisanship is practiced in the world by those in empires and conglomerates. The kingdom is something very different. And that's why this proclamation that Jesus is Lord or Christ is King is the single most politically subversive statement that can be made. Because what it declares is we are not aligned, we are not loyal to, we do not put our allegiance to any political party, partisan sect, 
nation flag idea above that, that Jesus is Lord. Here at Grace Church, we talk a lot about belong, become, believe. Uh, Declaring that Christ is king opens the door to belonging for everyone previously excluded by their other allegiances or nationalities, passport, or immigration status, whatever. It doesn't matter what those things are. If we are proclaiming Christ as king and as the ultimate authority in our life, then we belong to one another. And to put up a barrier between any other follower of Christ, anyone else who confesses Jesus, based on those things, is to deny that Christ is ultimately king. Well, living into these practices of allegiance like that is an ongoing task. It's something we have to become. It's not something that just happens overnight or instantaneously. That is a lifelong practice of rejecting the ways that we've been brought up and living into these new allegiances or this new allegiance. And our experience of this is what helps form our faith. It forms our belief. And that's why we talk about belong first, become, and then believe. Of course, all of those are working in synchronicity as well. So our text this week is Matthew 22. It's an interesting text. It's, it's one of the texts that has the most validation of all of Scripture. Like there's some various verses that are wrangled over who said it, how was it said, when was it said, was it really said, was that really how it happened? Biblical scholars are almost unanimous, which is a rare thing, believe me, that this passage, this encounter that Jesus had is is verifiable by almost every standard that this happened probably exactly as it is recorded right here. This is during the Passion Week. Jesus has come into Jerusalem. He's had what we call the triumphal entry, and he's arguing with the teachers, the various rulers and teachers, and we have this encounter, which is very interesting and very enlightening into our subject this week. Starting in verse 15, Matthew 22. Then the Pharisees went out and planned together to entrap him with his own words. They sent to him their disciples along with the Herodians, saying, Teacher, we know that you are truthful and teach the way of God in accordance with the truth. You do not count anyone's favor because you show no partiality. Tell us then, what do you think? Is it right to pay taxes to Caesar or not? But Jesus realized their evil intentions and said, hypocrites, why are you testing me? Show me the coin used for the tax. And this was a, this was a, the official imperial coin of the Roman Empire. So they brought him in denarius and he said to them, whose image is this and whose inscription? Because on it was a picture of Caesar. They replied, Caesar's. He said to them, then give to Caesar the things that are Caesar's and give to God the things that are God's. Now, when they heard this, they were stunned and they left him and went away. We've been asking here at Grace Church the question this week, what does it mean in these politically contentious times that Jesus is king 
and that we are all created in the image of God. Well, you see, much of what we come up with is going to depend, like most things, on how we're approaching Scripture. Laurel Holland this week in our teaching team uh, reminded us that reading the Word through the lens of ritual obedience, which is primarily what what the, the Pharisees were doing here, is very different than reading it through the lens of relationship, which is what Jesus invites us to do. She, she talked about one of her professors saying that one calls down thunder and lightning, the other calls us to be salt and light. Reading this through the lens of relationship invites us to be salt and light with this. And we have to understand that our lens is going to determine whether we see ourselves as conquering empire or as crucified kingdom. The kingdom of God is radically different than the empires of the world. The empires of the world demand absolute allegiance and obedience in order to be righteous. Unqualified. They are recruiting slaves and soldiers and servants. The crucified kingdom of Jesus Christ is nothing like that. In fact, it comes to overturn and set us free from these empires. These superficial allegiances which lead to slavery. The crucified kingdom is all about making us daughters and sons set free to worship, to know and to be known and to be free with that. The co-opting of the Christian message by the American civil religion or civic religion would indicate that for many of us, we lean towards an empire understanding. And we've struggled with how to really say this because this message could be easily misinterpreted as an endorsement of one political party or a condemnation of another. And now while all of us have very strong feelings about that, that is a superficial response. We're trying to get at something much deeper here. We're trying to get below the surface of that false choice. Do you have to be red or do you have to be blue on this? There's something much deeper. There's something, and it's not a, it's not a halfway point. It's not some kind of bargain struck. No, it is a transcendent reality of the crucified kingdom that sets us free from those allegiances and sets us free to stand in prophetic witness against both of them, all of them, any of them. As Christians, we dare not be co-opted by any political or partisan party. When the church and the state are married, it is always the church that is corrupted. We cannot allow that to happen. How utterly anti-gospel, how utterly reflective of the empires of the world, how utterly lacking in all the very things we as Christians are called to represent is it when we give our allegiance to anything but the kingdom of God as paramount. 
God have mercy on us all. I, we all are aware of the situation that we are living in. And we need to look back to these words of Jesus and let them do for us what they did for his disciples them. You see, Jesus dismissed this, this trap with a response that is so incredibly perfect that it shatters it. It shatters the trap and it leaves the people who said it speechless. It's, it starts with this. It starts with them trying to get him to say the wrong thing. Isn't that, isn't that just appropriate for all the people, all the ones who want outward obedience, who say you have to, you have to watch the right channel, you have to vote for the right party, you have to listen, read the right books, you have to, to have the right bumper sticker, fly the right flag. It's all about this outward transactional obedience, this identity with a sect. And Jesus will have none of it. They're trying to get him to say the, right, the, the wrong things while denying that he is living the right way, the, while denying that his very actions are revealing the darkness in their hearts. So he, he asked for the coin. He says, Who image, whose image is on this? You see, Caesar's image was thought to reflect the deity that he claimed. In Judeo-Christian tradition, we proclaim that every human being carries with them the image of God. Not a drawing, not a statue, not a painting, but our very flesh and bones. That's why we dare not treat any other human being as less than or as other. That's why we dare not perpetrate violence on them or dismiss them. All of us carry the image of God in our bodies, able-bodied, disabled. It doesn't matter. And therefore, all of us belong to God. We render ourselves to God because we are stamped with the image of God. And once we start treating other people as fully human, fully reflecting that image of God, we start to see how utterly absurd the toxic partisan battles, belittling, othering, condemning, shaming, naming is. I want to be very clear here. As Christians, we can have no part of it. That is not reflective of the crucified kingdom. And where does this leave us? Because I don't know about anybody else, but I felt pretty homeless in all the political partisan discussions that have been taking place, ramping up particularly over the last few years. Well, in a way, that's our inheritance. We are called to be wanderers. We are called to be pilgrims. We are called to be people who are, have our allegiance to a kingdom that is come, that is here, but is still yet to come. We are called to be in the world, but not of the world. 
And there is a certain amount of homelessness that is necessary, that is just part of the deal that we're going to feel as followers of Christ in this world, in this age. But we're not left without testimony, and we're not left without the spirit and encouragement. We talked about this. We thought about Israel in exile when they were carried off to Babylon and how Jeremiah wrote that they were to pray for the good of the place where they were, not to become part of it, not to become aligned or absorbed into it, but to understand that they were still connected in some way. And the, the metaphor that they used for that was to plant gardens, was to till the soil, was to understand and, and be part of the place without becoming overwhelmed or assimilated into it. Oh, what if we did that? What if we, as God's people right now, as those who show allegiance to the crucified kingdom, planted gardens of pre of peace, of inclusion, of shalom, of hospitality. What if we planted gardens that reflected the ultimate truth that we were confident our king has come, is here and is coming again, and that we did not have to run after and chase after the partisan idols that offered false promises of security and safety while delivering none of it. What if we could do that? N.T. Wright wrote that the gospel in the New Testament is the good news that God, the world's creator, is at last becoming king and that Jesus, whom this God raised from the dead, is the world's true Lord. Now, I don't know about you, but that's not necessarily how I understand the gospel or I understood the gospel when I was growing up. The gospel was all about saving my soul from hell after I died or making me a more moral person. And listen, we've said this before, don't go to hell when you die. That's a bad thing. Don't do it. And yes, we need to do good. We need to learn how to be good people. But that, those, are, those are byproducts, the fruit of these things. They only make sense in light that God is king. Jesus is king. Jesus is Lord. That's where our hope is. Brian Zond wrote, he said, when the gospel is reduced from an overarching meta narrative, the big story, right? To a formula for salvation after you die, when we reduce it to just a formula for salvation after you die, that will naturally reach for some other big story to interpret the world where we are right now. And this opens the door for the myths of religious nationalism to displace fidelity to Christ and his kingdom. Y'all, let's put that aside. Let's put aside the superficial. Let's put aside the partisan affiliations. Let's put aside being motivated, driven, manipulated, and controlled by fear, partisanship, anger. And let's proclaim, both with our mouth, yes, but with our lives, that Christ is King. Well, we want to take some time now and think about this. As we say oftentimes, look, don't believe me just because I'm on the screen. 
I hope you listen. I hope you'll weigh it out. But ultimately, you need to reflect on this. You need to go to the word. You need to talk about it within the groups that you, of people you know and trust with that. So we want to take time to reflect. We also want to take this time for communion. But if you have your elements there at home, we'll take these together. But also we, we reflect and we respond to this by giving our offering. Y'all, it's this time of year, right, where a lot of our budget is met. And giving of the offering is an act of worship. At Grace, we say it's a sign that no one here, no one watching is without something to give. And no one watching, no one here is without a need that they have. So worship is recognizing, in a way, what we're talking about, the image of God in each other, and giving freely and receiving humbly in our gifts and our offerings. And there's ways to do that that you'll see there. I think about this passage about Jesus talking to his disciples and saying, render unto God what is God's. And they maybe thought that that was a lot to give. And then he gathered them in the upper room. Maybe that night, maybe if, well, it was a few days later, maybe. And he showed them what it meant to give. He took the bread and he said, this is my body broken for you. See, Jesus never asked us to do anything that he doesn't do first and doesn't do ultimately. Jesus doesn't ask us to give without first giving himself. Likewise, he took the cup. He said, this is my blood poured out for you. Everything that we give to God is a response to what we've already received. And that's why we take these things humbly and acknowledging that something is being done for us that we cannot do for ourselves. So take this bread, take this cup today, eat and drink in that knowledge. Thank you for listening to the Grace Church of Northwest Arkansas podcast. You can find out more about us at gracechurchnwa.org. Have a blessed week.